Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, welcome to this episode 340 of Charlotte's Podcast, Beyond 300. I'm here with co-hosts Sarah Archer and Hannah LaRue. We've got a great lineup for you today. Yeah, we started off first with debut novelist Adele Myers and her historical fiction novel, The Tobacco Wives, a book that Reader's Digest said is sure to make waves with its compelling characters, feminist undertones, and empowering story. Publishers Weekly calls it a sparkling debut, and New York Times bestselling author Fiona Davis describes it as a story of courage, of women willing to take a stand in the face of corporate greed, and most definitely a tale for our times. That sounds so good. Um, And up next, we have a two-minute tip from Paul Reale of Charlotte Lit called The So-Called Rules of Writing Part 2. Yeah, we have a uh, writing topic discussion with our blogger, Stephanie Jones. She's the author of Giving Gal, and her title is uh, Working as an Author with Dyslexia. Then we're going to wrap up with reading recommendations, book pitches, community and listener engagement, and what's coming in the next episode. But first, what's up with the podcast books? Uh, Well, we're celebrating the release of book three in the Write Quote series this month titled Writing Process and Tools. Yes, we are. We're so excited to share these quotes. They're inspirational. They're practical. Lots of great tips in there. Um, We've drawn the quotes from over 500 podcast interviews with hardworking, award-winning, and New York Times bestselling authors in more than 33 states and five countries. Yeah, and this book reveals how writers really feel about the writing process and tools. If you want to learn more, just head over to our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, and click on the podcast books tab in the menu bar. Um, You can order this book online and in print wherever books are sold. Also, don't forget that the first book in the Write Quotes series, which focuses on the writing life, can be downloaded free online. It's our gift to the writing universe. <laughs> so you can look for that link on the podcast books page of our website. Yeah, and you can also pre-order the upcoming books in the series now. Uh, when you do, you help support the podcast. Um, of course, here's the lineup. You've, uh, you know about the first book, the one that's free. The second one was Learning to Write. And we're now dealing with the uh, writing process and tools. But uh, coming... Uh, in June, the book is Storytelling, Inspiration, and Research. July, Writing Techniques and Characters. August, Writing Community Revision and Editors. September, The Emotional Writing Journey. And October, Publishing and Book Marketing. And if you want to receive all eight of these books for free, you can join our street team. The link to join is at the contact tab on the menu bar at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And also, if you just go to the podcast book, books page on the website, you can find a link there. All you have to do to receive all the books for free is to agree to leave short, honest reviews. Um, just a few words about how you felt about the books. These aren't heavy reads, but they are full of weighty tips and reflections. Yeah, and don't forget that if you become a Patreon supporter of the show for as little as $5 a month, we will give you all the books for free before they release. And that's in addition to the 150 exclusive interviews you'll be able to access on our Patreon channel on the craft and business of writing. Yeah, and we're really excited about this. Uh, it was fun to put together. And it's going to be a great resource, and we're going to be doing workshops in the future uh, around these books uh, in person, maybe online as well, because there's just a lot of uh, great content in there by a lot of uh, writers who've been down the path of uh, publishing, whether it be traditional or indie. So right after this, uh, we're going to start with Act One, our interview segment of the show. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. 
This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, here we are with Act One, the interview segment of the show. Uh, uh, our author today is Adele Myers. The book is The Tobacco Wives. Uh, Sarah, tell us a little bit about Adele. Sure. Um, Adele grew up just down the road in Asheville. She has a journalism degree from UNC Chapel Hill, representing those Tar Heels. Yes. <laughs> she currently works in advertising, um, which actually is a subject that comes up a little bit in the book. So she was able to draw on some interesting expertise there. And she lives in Brooklyn with her husband, son, and their rescue dog, Chipper. And The Tobacco Wives is her first novel. Yeah, and you're going to have to get over the UNC Love Fest <laughs> later in the episode between uh, Sarah and Adele. I, I, I'm, I'm pro <laughs> other schools, too. Um, I'm wearing... But I did ask her a little bit about her time at UNC. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah, Hannah, give us the synopsis for the book. Um, I love that she's a Tar Heel, first and foremost. Just have to say that real quick. I'm literally wearing my one of my eight Carolina um, sweatshirts. So... <laughs> love that. Um, The Tobacco Wives is a story that reimagines from a feminist angle one of the largest corporate frauds of the 20th century. Uh, Maddie Sykes, a seamstress working in Brightleaf, North Carolina, wants to report what she knows, but in a town where everyone depends on big tobacco to survive, she doesn't know who she can trust and fears that exposing the truth may destroy the lives of the proud women with whom she has forged very strong bonds. Um, And Booklist says that debut novelist Myers sets her activist novel in 1946, but the Causes of workers and women's rights are timeless. Um, Fiona Davis says that this is a story of courage of women willing to take a stand in the face of corporate greed and most definitely a tale of our times. Yeah, it's an interesting book um, and uh, enjoyed listening to the interview. And now let's uh, share it with you. Um, so, hey, listeners, I'm happy to be here today with Adele Myers, author of The Tobacco Wives. Adele, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Um, we were just talking about how this is such a great North Carolina story, and we're definitely excited to talk to you about it on the on the show here. Um, I noticed that you have a lot of personal connections to this story, too. In your, your author's note at the end of the book, you mention some connections to several elements of the story, I believe, from both sides of your family. Can you talk a little bit about your per- personal connections to the people and the places and the subject matter here and how that inspired you? Sure, absolutely. So... My my grandparents on both sides are from or lived in Winston-Salem. And so the book is based, the, the fictional town of Brightleaf, North Carolina, is, is very much based on Winston-Salem. And I spent a lot of time there um, as a little girl with my grandparents. I, I lived in Asheville, but um, my summers were in Winston. And it's interesting because the story was originally... Um, inspired by the fact that one of my grandmothers was a hairdresser for the wives of R.J. Reynolds tobacco executives in the 1940s. So that was kind of the seed of the idea. I was always just kind of fascinated as a little girl by the idea of these women. And as I began to work on the book and looked more closely at my family history, I realized that pretty much everyone in my extended family had some connection. Um, my grandmother was a seamstress and she sewed for lots of 
different people, but um, definitely sewed for the women that I refer to as the the tobacco wives. My grandfather was a home builder and worked in the cigarette factories. And then my other grandfather was an executive with Wachovia Bank, which was uh, right next door to <laughs> to the R.J. Reynolds um, tobacco operation in downtown Winston. Wow. So this is your world and your family's world. Um, yes. I think that, that yes. really comes through in the pages, too, because it feels so real and so lived in. Um, and I would imagine in addition to the personal connections you have, you probably had to do a lot of research. I mean, this takes place in the 1940s. Brightleaf, mm-hmm. the, the town of the book, is very much a tobacco town. Um, and there are elements, I think, of the story that feel very foreign to a modern reader. Like people not only think that cigarettes are OK, but doctors are basically prescribing them to expectant mothers saying like, this will help you during the pregnancy. Um, So it's a very different mindset than we have today. Um, Can you talk about some of the research you did too, to kind of get into this world and to bring it to life? Sure. Um, I I will mention though, before I get into the research outside my family, that some of the conversations that I had with my father were really illuminating. I, I didn't realize that as a teenager, he worked in the cigarette factories. And and talking with him about that really informed my, I think, my whole um, sense of what it might be like for a town to realize that what they're doing and what they're producing is dangerous and is hurting people. Because he talked about how incredibly proud everyone was to work for R.J. Reynolds and to be part of building the tobacco capital of the South and how um, there was just a tremendous pride in the community. And also those were really good jobs that paid very well. And so everything pretty much in the community was was built on tobacco money and tobacco and cigarette taxes. And that just really struck me because I think it would be easy to tell this story and and you know really vilify the the tobacco company and and certainly deservedly so because at some point they really did know what was going on and they they covered it up but i i thought there was also a story to tell about the sadness of this community losing its its pride and its um and its livelihood really so talking with my father was was really eye opening and then i did have to do quite a bit of research, um, especially to understand the, you know, at that time in history, the views on smoking. Um, Advertising is a part of the book. There's a whole storyline, as you know, about um, the role of advertising. And so I had to dig into that, although that is that is my profession. My day job for the last 20 years has been um, in public relations and advertising. So I've, I've joked that somehow I've managed in one book to shine a negative light on my home state and my chosen profession. <laughs> and, um, but uh, hopefully I, with compassion towards both. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And that's, that's one thing that really struck me in reading this was you do have a lot of compassion for these people, um, even though it's a difficult topic. And we can look back on the story with our hindsight, you know, being in the 21st century and see things in a certain way. But um, you're you're showing these people who, like you said, this is their world and they're very proud of what they do. They don't know that there's anything wrong with cigarettes. And so this is a crop that has built their town, giving them everything that they have and they're proud of what they're producing. Um, and it's interesting that sort of disconnect in our 
modern perspective versus the characters at the time. Um, also, not just the issue of tobacco, but things like attitudes towards race and gender, which are very different now. I'm kind of curious, like, how do you navigate the role of hindsight in writing a piece of historical fiction like this? Like, how did you go about portraying the thoughts and the feelings and dilemmas of these characters in a way that feels real and authentic for the time, but also approaching them with sensitivity and like they're real people and not vilifying them um, and not being judgmental? I, I think the research really helped inform that. And, and you know, again, that the advertising, like thinking about and getting really getting in touch with um, and being historically accurate about how women were viewed. I think that advertising in general is a great way to it's a it's a snapshot of the culture at a certain time in history. And so I created Pinterest boards of all these old ads. I, I, I'm very visual and I um, am inspired by old photos. So I really enjoyed that part of the research and that ran the gamut from what did a a bedroom in a southern town, you know, what did a lady's bedroom look like? How was it decorated to, um, you know, the advertising at the time to visuals about the tobacco process? There are many, many steps in growing and curing and, you know, turning tobacco into cigarettes. So I had to learn about all that. And I, I think that actually reading those ads. Um, there were a couple of books that were really helpful. There was one that uh, gave first person accounts from women during that time about their lives, their everyday lives. And so I think hearing directly and seeing the messages that were put out at the time really helped me because it's hard to get that right. I think mm -hmm. um, it can be difficult to to get it just right. And I also will say that during the editing process with my editor and also with my agent that we talked quite a bit about how to represent certain um, elements of the story. For instance, one of the characters, um, actually there are multiple characters who are gay and we talked quite a bit about whether to overtly say that or, or not. And what we landed on is that at that time in the South, um, it wasn't really spoken about. It was kind of a, a, um, a known secret though, <laughs> that a lot mm -hmm. of people. And so that's how I approached it with the character, Anthony, who is a, a close friend of, of the protagonist, Maddie. Um, I wanted it to come across that that was part of his identity, but without coming right out and saying it. Yeah, and I think you really get that across too in, in without him saying it, the way that other people talk about him and react to him, which is probably realistic for the time, that people kind of mm -hmm. talk around the issue without ever saying anything overtly. Um, right. I think that was that was clear, but it also was handled in a very sensitive way. Um, and another thing with this question of sort of getting the research right or getting the story right for the time, we, we have a lot of historical fiction authors on this show. I'm always interested in the research process in terms of like the the known unknowns versus the unknown unknowns when you're writing historical fiction. Like, you know, you might be writing a scene where a character is driving a car and you have to figure out, hmm, like, I don't know what models of car they had in 1946. <laughs> Let me go and research that. 
But then there are also the the gaps in your knowledge that you might not even be aware of. Like maybe there are words or phrases that we use today that weren't used back then or that meant something different. Um, How do you, is there anything that you can do in your research process to kind of mitigate those unknown unknowns and be as thorough as possible with your accuracy? I think with the unknowns, um, I think it helps to have other readers um, you know, give you feedback as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, because just by the nature of an unknown, <laughs> um, it's, it's hard to, sometimes you have a blind spot to mm-hmm. that. Um, I mean, I try to get ahead of it by doing, by really immersing myself in that time period and, and reading, you know, listening to music from that time period. Um, I did things like I ordered, I found like replica um, makeup. I found a brand called Besame and they actually had a 1946, which is the year the book is uh, set in. They had a 1946 lipstick and I ordered that. I ordered old um, dress patterns and and actually I'm often inspired by by objects that I gather that help inform the time period. And one example is that I, I ordered some dress patterns and one of, one of them that I got was um, it used uh, bags like feed bags from wheat and from other items as fabric um, to make dresses, which is something that happened during the war because uh, fabric was, was scarce or it was, you know, limited, like there was only a certain amount of fabric that you could use to make a dress. So I find that I'm often inspired by really immersing myself in that time period. And then later on, I do find that as I'm going, you know, rereading scenes, like for instance, if there's a phone call between two characters, I would have to like look up and make sure like, okay, what kind of telephones and was it common to have a phone? in your home um, at that time, depending on, you know, your socioeconomic status, <laughs> like would there have been a phone in in the seamstress's home and not, uh, or not? So uh, does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, yeah. I think that what you're saying about kind of immersing yourself as fully as possible, and I love that idea of not just doing kind of the reading and the conversations or looking at images, but actually physical objects from the time period mm-hmm. too, like the makeup and the dress patterns. Um, I would imagine there's something that just makes it more real to have like those tactile objects. And I actually, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the the fashion in the book too, and the clothing. Um, the main character, Maddie, you know, she's a teenager, but she does begin working as a seamstress here with her aunt. And I loved reading the descriptions of the outfits that these kind of, you know, fashionable society women of the 1940s were wearing. You go into a lot of detail about the garments that they wear. Um, did you have, it sounds like at least some of them were inspired by real life, maybe dress patterns and things like that. Like how did you find inspiration for the designs in this book? And is fashion something that you have um, an interest or a passion for? Well, it's funny. The, um, I think that the reason that I ended up going in that direction is because my other grandmother, um, one was a hairdresser for the wives um, of the tobacco executives. And then the other one was, was a seamstress. And so as a little girl, I, I helped her and I have a lot of um, vivid memories of 
helping her cut out patterns and going to the fabric store and selecting things. And, and so I have very fond memories of that. And, and I also, I liked the fact that there's an interesting relationship and dynamic between a seamstress and their client uh, because of the series of fittings. I think it, it, it reminds me of a hairdresser, actually, someone that you see on a regular basis and that, that there's an intimacy there. And, and back then there was a very real class difference. So that was interesting to me, but I don't. sew. (laughs) I, um, I had to do a lot of research. I was inspired a lot by photography and by reading about, um, the history of, you know, garments at that time and what was popular. And that was a lot of fun to, to really look into that and, and get inspired by the photos and movies, old movies, um, and also just watching videos. Like I watched a lot of YouTube videos that were um, that were sewing videos, like technique, just to be able to to talk about the language and the process in a credible way. Um, but yeah, I don't have I don't have I'm not I'm not uh, into sewing. So hopefully, well, I was able to achieve it. I haven't gotten any feedback that <laughs> that people. Um, that it wasn't believable. So knock on wood, I think, I think I did okay. Yeah, I mean, it definitely felt believable, you know, for, for me as someone who is a very, very amateur sewer. But <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, yeah, I loved reading about the, the fashion in the book. And like you mentioned, you're a very visual person. And I think that came across mm-hmm. a lot. I, I also um, kind of respond to things in a visual way. And I loved reading your use of color in the book and how you described everything, the not just the garments that the characters wear and the Maddie and her aunt are making, but also the homes, the settings, the cars. You describe everything mm-hmm. um, in very sort of lush visuals and there's a lot of bright colors in this world. It's very cinematic, sort of the way that it reads on the page. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk about the role of color in your writing? Like, do you... Do you envision everything kind of playing out in your head as you're writing these scenes? Is that something that you were consciously weaving into the world? I do. I think I, I really try to capture all of the senses in my writing. I, I think for me as a reader, that helps me feel like I've been transported to a world when I can, can imagine, you know, the colors, the, what I'm seeing, what I'm feeling, you know, even like smells, I think, um, are really evocative. So it's something that I think is also just natural for me. I think I've always written that way. Um, this is my first novel and prior to, to writing this, I mostly wrote short stories and I wonder if, I think in a short story, you have to do a lot in a short, um, you know, a short number of pages. And, and part of that being able to transport a reader very quickly, I think can be done with, um, with descriptions that are, are vivid and that are, um, that tap into different senses. Yeah, I can I can totally see that. I think that I felt transported into a different world here um, on every page, really. And and actually, I did want to talk to you a little bit about the short stories that you've written. But before we get to that, um, do you have a passage from the book that you can read for us? Sure. 
So I'll read a passage. It's fairly early in the book, and I'll just set up what I'm going to read. Mm -hmm. um, the main character, Maddie, is visiting the cigarette factory with her aunt. And this is the first time that she's ever been inside the factory. So she, uh, you know, in the book, she she gets a bird's eye view of the world of these wealthy women and the tobacco executives, but she also gets a view and a look into the kind of ugly underbelly of, of, um, of the tobacco world as well in the factory. So she is entering the factory with her aunt Etta in this scene. All employees at the Brightleaf factories were required to dress in nearly identical uniforms with special patches sewn onto the breast pocket like a badge. The patch announced the type of work performed and was a point of pride for many of the employees, especially the ones who had hard scrabbled their way up out of the fields to the better jobs on the manufacturing line. A group of men stood outside the factory entrance smoking. Who's this pretty young thing? The smallest of them called. Are you spoken for, doll? The other men snickered. Get back to work, Lloyd, said a tall, tall fellow with leathery skin. She's too young even for you. He punched baby-faced Lloyd lightly on the arm as the rest of them laughed. Aunt Etta peered into the door's small window and knocked. We were buzzed through, and once inside, a woman sitting at a high wooden desk asked Aunt Etta to present identification and sign a ledger book. She with you, she said, referring to me. Yes, ma'am, she's my assistant. Assistant, I liked the sound of that. The lady came out from behind the desk to stand beside us, a cigarette in one hand and a weighty ring of keys in the other. She was a heavy, dark-skinned woman with steel wool hair and glasses hanging from a chain around her neck and an air of authority that suited her. She led us down a long hallway and reaching a locked metal door, made a performance of searching for just the right key. There you are, she said, holding open the door for us without crossing the threshold herself. No sooner had Aunt Etta and I stepped onto the factory floor when my eyes began to water. The air reeked of mint. My throat burned like nobody's business, and the inside of my nose felt like it had been painted by a lit match. What is that? I shouted over the whirring of the machines. What's that smell? I had asked Aunt Etta, but it was a man working next to us who yelled back, Darlin', that's a smell of money. He hollered over the racket. His smile revealed a mouth full of yellowing teeth. Corn mint oil, Aunt Etta said, wiping her eyes. You get used to it. We walked between rows of clanking machines and conveyor belts, each one manned by a worker, some standing and some sitting on high stools. They wore matching khaki jackets with green cuffs and collars, the women in skirts, the men in slacks. The wooden floor was worn in spots where workers had scuffed their feet or scooted up their stools. I don't know what I'd expected, but it wasn't this. Factory works hard, everybody knows that, but it was painful just walking through here. How the workers could spend all day every day here was beyond me. Get used to it? No thanks. Women's fingers flew across the conveyor belts, pulling out cigarettes here and there and throwing them into baskets on the floor. They're inspectors, Aunt Etta shouted, looking for stems or loose filters. One of the women smiled at me, her fingernails worn to the quick. A few of them taped up with blood seeping through. Doris here is one of the fastest. Isn't that right, Doris? 
Nine hundred thousand a day, Aunt Etta said. What? Doris yelled, her fingers flying. Aunt Etta shook her head, waved her off like, never mind. She can't hear a lick, she told me. Ten-hour days in here will do that to you. Farther down the line, workers in white gloves scooped up cigarettes, lining them side by side in metal trays. They scooped and stacked, scooped and stacked, the motion almost graceful. When they saw Aunt Etta, they smiled, a few of them pointing to their jackets and giving her a thumbs up. I puffed up a little, knowing that last summer I had cut and sewed some of their uniforms myself. The break room was at the end of the long line of machines, a small wood-paneled area with a flimsy door. Inside were fold-out chairs, a cigarette machine, a sink, and a water fountain. A bin of cigarettes, light green, all of them broken or misshaped, sat on a long table next to books of matches. Maybe I could sneak one when Aunt Etta wasn't looking. I'd been smoking since I was 12, all my friends too. The adults likely knew, but there was an unwritten rule that girls didn't do it in public until we completed schooling or got married, whichever came first. A large advertisement for Moments Cigarettes was tacked up on a cork bulletin board in the break room. In it, a man in a white doctor's coat wearing a stethoscope around his neck proudly held up a pack of the new cigarettes, while a gorgeous blonde next to him held one between her ruby red lips. Just what the doctor ordered, the caption read. I love that. You really do feel like you're entering a different world there. It's just fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks. Um, yeah, and, and so you, you were mentioning before that you have written short stories as well. And I think in your author's note, you said that this book actually initially started as a short story years ago. Um, tell us about that. How did this evolve from a short story into a novel? It did. It started as a short story and I actually found it. It was um, the year 2000, so <laughs> a very long time ago. Um, and the story itself was very different, but I was taking a short story writing class at night and I had written a story about, and it came about through an exercise in class. Like it was just an exercise. And I ended up writing about, about these women, these tobacco wives. And my teacher at the time had given me some feedback on the story and written some notes on the, on the back of it. And one of the things that she said was, I think there may be a longer piece here. It feels like this just flowed very naturally from you. And it's very vivid and came to life in a way that's, that's exciting. And I want to read more, basically, she said. Um, and she said, maybe there's even a novel here. And that just stuck with me. Um, I think the fact that she thought I could write a novel, first of all, and the fact that she wanted to read more. And so that really stayed with me. It was one of those moments in life, you know, where you, where someone says something and it just, it just hits you. And so it took me many, many years to, to actually pursue writing a novel. Um, I continued to write short stories. I worked in public relations and advertising. I got married. I had a son. Um, so my life was very full, but I, I always wrote on the side. And, and then about 10 years ago, I made a decision that I was going to give it a go to, to write a novel. And I'm not quite sure why at that moment I decided. I, I think I was at a point in my life where my son was a little bit older, where I was uh, 
my career, I had reached a certain level where I felt very confident with, um, with my job. I kind of wasn't, you know, still trying to work long hours and, and move my way up the, the corporate ladder. And so I started to work on it and it took many, many years. Um, but I still was in touch with that teacher and at certain junctures during the process, I worked with her. She's a freelance editor and she gave me some feedback and, and she was, uh, I had, when the book launched last March, um, I had a little party with friends and she came and it was just amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and she kind of laughs cause she said, gosh, you know, I, I tell people that a lot. I'll say, oh, there's maybe a longer piece here. She's like, but you actually listened. <laughs> you, know, you actually did something with it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I took her seriously. So That's so cool. That must be really amazing for her too, to know that, you know, she, she helped you spark this idea years ago that now is a novel. Um, it's funny, we, we talked to so many writers on the show who have some kind of a a backstory with a teacher at one point in their life, a teacher who inspired oh. them and told them like, you're a writer, you should do this. And for so many people, that's, that's part of what gets them going. So we love our teachers out there. Um, and actually on that subject of teachers and education, I know you went to UNC Chapel Hill and studied journalism there. Um, I'm also a UNC grad and we have, um, we've had a bunch of Carolina people on the show and in our audience. So of course Great. I have to ask you about that. <laughs> um, what was, what was your time at UNC like, and also with your journalism degree there, has that factored into your fiction writing in any way? Um, yes. So I absolutely loved my time there. I, I just loved it. And I still, um, I actually have two friends who were roommates um, my freshman year, who I'm still very close to. And my son is a junior in high school now, so he's looking at colleges. And we visited Carolina, and he's he's very interested. So I'm really rooting for Carolina. Fingers <laughs> for crossed. <my> son. <laughs> right? Um, and I, I mean, I loved the journalism school. I It really set me up for... Um, my career as a writer, but also uh, my career in public relations. Um, I have very fond memories of taking news writing classes with um, Professor Schumacher, who um, was such a character. Uh, I don't know if any of your listeners know of him, but he has since passed away, but he was a former newsman who was really old school, very strict, Um, and there was actually a comic strip that was based on him, um, a student, uh, I think his last name was McNally, who had a a comic strip called Shoe, (laughs) and it was based on him. And, um, Professor Schumacher would lock the door to the classroom, um, at the time that class started. And if you were not there, you were locked out. You were not getting in. (laughs) And he also, he also, um, in the news writing course where we had to write stories, if you had one typo, you got an F, you failed. Oh my gosh. And, um, and so it sounds harsh, but he was, uh, he had a big influence on me. I, I really respected the fact that he cared that much and he was preparing us for what the real world world is like, you know, Mm. as a reporter, you don't, you don't make a typo, you don't have typos in your stories and you, you show up on time. So very fond memories. 
That's amazing. Um, he sounds like quite a character. <laughs> I wish he I could was, see that comic was. strip. Um, <laughs> well, we're, we're going to wrap up soon. But before we go, I would love to know if you could go back and give one piece of advice to yourself as a younger writer, what would you want to tell yourself? I would want to tell myself to just keep going, just keep working towards um, your goal. Uh, it takes so much persistence in this industry to to actually get published. And I think it also takes some, some luck, <laughs> serendipity mm -hmm. um, as well. But if you're not persistent and willing to just keep keep at it um, despite rejection then you're you don't have a chance um, so I think that would be the advice that I would give yeah, it's that's tough so it's it's tough you know it's um there are a lot of talented people but I think persistence wins out because it it takes time it takes a lot of time to actually do the writing. It takes time to find an agent, to get published, even if you're self-publishing. So like, just keep at it. Yeah. And you're a testament to that because even, you know, in a way, this is, book has been in the works since 2000, it sounds like. So it's, yes, it's been a journey yes. and now it's here. <laughs> yes. It's, I'm still pinching myself. I still kind of can't believe that it actually the stars aligned and it happened. I'm very, very grateful. And I'm also proud that I stuck with it and that, um, and I, you know, I do think that also other writers and teachers and other people played a huge role in giving me the confidence to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. I can, it sounds like you've had some great teachers and mentors along the way. Um, and we're just, we're happy to celebrate this beautiful book with you. Thank you for uh, sharing it with us. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottereaderspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits, but with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play, or participate in an author or marketing talk, or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750 word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. All right, here we are in Act 2 with uh, our writing topic discussion. First, we have a, a Charlotte two-minute tip. Uh, this is from Paul Realius, the second in a series uh, on the so-called rules of writing. Uh, let's uh, listen in now. Hi, I'm Paul Reale, co-founder of Charlotte Lit, with a two-minute writing tip for Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is one of a series of tips about the so-called rules of writing, in which we take on those rules and take them apart. You've heard it said that you should write every day. This is a very well-meaning bit of advice, to be sure. But should that be your goal? Hmm. There are many good reasons to write every day. It helps you form the habit of writing. It helps you take your writing seriously to self-identify as a writer. It creates momentum. Objects in motion stay in motion, etc., as your high school physics teacher said. It helps you to avoid the waiting for the muse fantasy, because the muse does not tend to show up unless summoned, and you summon the muse by sitting down to write. 
It forces you to get words down on paper, which is important because the words will not write themselves. And yet, none of these benefits require that you write every day. Should you write every day? The novelist Kim Wright, a longtime member of the Charlotte Lit faculty, writes a thousand words a day every day. When people ask her to confirm every day, she replies, do you brush your teeth every day? You don't think about whether to brush your teeth. It's part of what you do. A thousand words or 250 words or 30 minutes or whatever. Imagine the work you could do, the work you could produce if you did it 365 days each year because it's part of what you do. And still I ask, should you write every day? Here's my answer. You should create for yourself a writing practice that fits your life and includes a defined and scheduled number of writing periods each week. Note the word scheduled. If that number for you is seven, so be it. If it's three, so be it. But if it's whatever I could squeeze in this week, the answer is often going to be zero. For many people, the way to avoid zero is to go in the other direction and try for seven. In the end, though, only you can answer this question. But have an answer, not just a shrug. And there's this, the beauty of every day is the beauty of all big, hairy, audacious goals. Even if you only get close to the goal, you get so far. For more two-minute tips from Charlotte Litt, listen to beyond 300 episodes of this podcast or visit charlottelitt.org slash tips. All right, uh, another uh, interesting uh, blog uh, post uh, tip post from Paul Reale at uh, Charlotte. It's um, interesting he's talking about writing every day. I think I remember one time before Paul was encouraging us to write every day, so he's evolving a little bit. Aren't you, Paul? Yeah. Uh, but I, th- I think that, I think maybe I didn't have time to write every day now. But uh, it, I think it's in, uh, some interesting things in here. Uh, Hannah, we'll start with your reactions uh, to, to this. Uh, you know, trying to commit to do something every day is kind of daunting, right? Yeah, for sure. I think, um, you know, because I think we were saying in a recent episode, it's like life happens, right? There's things that happen in your day. Sometimes you just can't get it done. Um, I like the idea of, I mean, I think because I'm always doing like 80 things. I I really relate to this because I have to schedule time to do specific tasks because if I don't, I'm going to be like, 9 p.m. that night and I'm like all right I'm done for the day and then I didn't do what I really wanted to do or like (laughs) and writing is very like if I'm pitch writing so I mean I have two days a week I have to schedule two days a week that I just spend the entire day writing pitches or making marketing collateral or you know whatever it might be because um, I need that focus time for it Uh, and I think if I can get those two days done two eight hour days then I I feel pretty good about it but it's hard for me to do something um, every day. So I kind of prefer to do bulk work like that versus like an hour a day or something. Um, but I think as long as it's like, like he said, you know, finding what works best for your lifestyle and what you're actually writing about or what you're working on, um, and just doing what works, what fits the most into your day. Um, I think that's kind of the key to being able to do it because I am the kind of person too, where it's like, once you have your mindset on something that you got to do, I'm, I'm going to get it done. I just need to be organized with when I'm going to do it. (laughs) So I, I think that's a great tip. 
It doesn't surprise me, Hannah, that you have 80 things going on. At my a brain time. is like, it's like the bunny quote from Elaine um, in our last episode. It's just like, that is my, I've got like eight bunnies in my brain. So <laughs> all the time. Jan- Janet, my wife talks about <clears throat> the hamster. Yes. Room, you know, yeah, yeah. So Sarah, I get the sense that you're a fairy, fairly disciplined writer. How does this speak to you in terms of uh, how you organize your writing practice? Yeah, I I love this tip. I mean, I wish that I were more of a disciplined writer. (laughs) I feel like a lot of times I let other work get in the way and writing becomes like the last priority. Um, I I like the way that Paul phrased it where he he basically said that it's not so important what your writing schedule looks like as the fact that you have a writing schedule. Like maybe writing every day isn't feasible for you or it's not what works best for you. But the important thing is to be conscious about it and intentional about it and make sure that you're carving out that time, even if it's one day a week or Um, I think we had a writer who wrote a blog post about doing like a binge day every now and then. Um, And and it's about, you know, your lifestyle and the other demands you have on your time, but also just what works best for you and kind of how your mind works. Like, I think for me, ideally, it is good to write every day and to do a shorter session, you know, maybe like maximum two to three hours, at least once a day. That's kind of how I'm most productive. But I know people who, whether it's writing or other creative projects, they tend to do better when they don't work for a while but then they have a day where they can just work for like eight or 12 hours on a project and really get a lot done um so different people's brains and attention spans kind of work in different ways and i think you have to be conscious of what works best for you but yeah just that idea of like setting an intention for it and scheduling the time for yourself because otherwise yeah like i'm always going to find other things to do rather than write (laughs) well and i also think it depends on the project i mean if you know if you're writing a novel you can maybe set a schedule and maybe keep to that or you may maybe you're going to binge parts of your novel um if you're writing from prompts maybe you could schedule some time just to write for a prompt to get your juices flowing i love this quote uh, I, I remember it uh because it's in one of our quote books kim wright uh, talked about uh, this idea of writing every day like uh, brushing your teeth and for those of you that don't know about it uh you know sesame street has a great teeth brushing uh video it lasts about <laughs> Three minutes, long to enough know. to get a toddler <laughs> to brush their teeth. You know, it's called brush a brush a brush a, and uh, it's the only way that Simon will brush his teeth if he watches the video. <laughs> I respect that. <laughs> but you know what I found out? I found out that I'm not brushing my teeth nearly long enough after watching this because they have these kids brushing forever. I don't know how I got sideways on this, but the point is, <laughs> the point is that it is something that you, if you do it every day, it's going to get more habit forming. But maybe you need to let the habit form before you tell yourself you're going to create this habit. Because if you're, if it's like creating New Year's resolutions, right? Well, I'm going to start writing every day, or I'm going to write every Thursday, I'm going to write every Saturday. Yeah. Well, as Hannah just said, life intervenes. And, you know, so maybe start trying something, find your rhythm, and then say, yeah, this is what I'm going to continue to do. Because I think it takes about, what, six weeks to form a habit? Something like yeah. that. Uh, that yeah. That makes sense. And uh, Hannah, with 80 things going on at once and everything in your life, and I don't know. You're going to have to let the habit form It's like about a year right? for me. <laughs> <laughs> Six weeks equates a year in my life. <laughs> well, it's, it's good, though. But, uh, well, thanks, Paul, for that. It's a, a nice uh, thought there on the so-called rules of writing as it relates to writing every day. Uh, if you can write every day, great. If you can't, uh, write uh, when when it speaks to you. Because as he finished up, he said, you know, if you commit, if make this commitment, but you only get close, then you're really so far away. Because then you start to say, well, I'm, I'm not doing what I can do. I'm failing at that. So 
pick what works for you and, and stick with that. All right, now we got a uh, community blog post. Uh, this is Stephanie Jones. Her post is working as an author with dyslexia. Sarah, uh, tell us a little bit about Stephanie. Sure. So Stephanie L. Jones gave a gift every day for 522 days, and that journey changed her life. Now she's on a mission to inspire others to give and practice gratitude daily. Um, as part of that, she has an inspiring podcast that she hosts called Giving Your Best Life. As a TEDx speaker, she loves sharing her message about the stage from the stage in schools, colleges, churches, and businesses. She's a best-selling and award-winning author of The Giving Gal, Giving Gal and the Christmas Cookie Extravaganza, The Giving Challenge, The Gratitude Challenge, and Thank You Notes to God. And she lives out her dreams with her husband, Mike, in Indiana. Yeah, I think this idea of gratitude is so uh, powerful um, when you're thinking about working through things, being grateful, uh, making a list. Um, it kind of helps put different things in perspective. And uh, this, was an, this blog post attracted my attention because we haven't ever had an author um, with dyslexia talk about having dyslexia as a writer. Um, and uh, she said it was particularly challenging to even just record the audio because of, of that, but she did, and we're really grateful that she did so. And let's listen in now. I never set out to become an author. It wasn't a goal in my life until it was. Writing was the furthest career or side hustle on my radar. In junior high, when I had to write a report, I'd go to the library, gather as many books on this particular subject, copy and paste everything, and then interchange all the words. So I wasn't technically plagiarizing, but let's be real. That is what I was doing. I had no idea how to write the school years. Book reports were the worst. I hated reading with the capital H-A-T-E. I'd read the first and last chapter, skim the middle, maybe track down cliff notes, and wing the report. I learned to navigate the educational system, not because I was a good reader or writer, but because I was creative, had an incredible work ethic, and persevered because I never wanted to fail. I would do what it took to get the job done, even if it meant bending the rules. I felt I had no other choice. I may not have been as book smart as my friends, but I could outwork and outhustle anyone, which is how I survived high school. College was a different story. And in my freshman year, I got put into remedial English. How embarrassing. I have blocked the class from my mind. I couldn't figure out why I would often find myself studying for 20 hours for a test when my friends were putting in four to five hours. They were making good grades while I was squeaking by. And yet, by some sort of miracle, I graduated college. One good goal changed everything. Fast forward 12 years, and on January 1st, 2011, I set one good goal. Give a gift for 365 days. Me, one person looking to make a difference in one other person's life each day. My definition of a gift was simple. Give and expect nothing in return. For some reason that I can't remember, I blogged about my journey. People kept telling me I should write a book. Were they crazy? That was my first thought. My writing was terrible and my grammar was questionable at best. But people saw beyond my weaknesses and enjoyed the heartfelt stories of giving to people I loved, my community, and strangers. Discovering Dyslexia. Six months before I published my first book, The Giving Challenge, I discovered I had dyslexia. It was as if a puzzle piece had been missing my entire life and I didn't know it. 
Now I knew why I struggled to write and understand all the grammar rules, why I read slowly and my palms got sweaty anytime I had to read in public. Discovering I had dyslexia was a gift I didn't know I needed. Sure, Working as a dyslexic, dyslexic author can be challenging at times, but after six books, several which were award-winning and best-selling, I've learned that a label should not define us. I focus on the story and pour my emotion and details on the page. The compliment I love most from readers is, I feel like I'm sitting across from you telling a story. When I hear that, I know I've done my job. They aren't just a reader, but have become a friend I'm sitting down with for coffee and sharing my stories. Navigating writing with dyslexia. I read a lot and learn from other authors. The more I read, the more improvement I see in my writing. I don't let my slow pace of reading discourage me. I'm not competing against anyone but myself. Tools like Grammarly are a lifesaver. I hire excellent editors that know I'm dyslexic and show me a lot of grace, but still push me as a writer. They don't allow me to use dyslexia as an excuse. I often say the editing is harder than the first draft. But once again, that is where determination and perseverance, my strengths, come into play. Finally, I focus on finishing instead of perfection. It took me five years to write my first book because I look for perfect stories, perfect writing, and perfect page word count. Now, I focus on setting writing goals, doing my best, and finishing and publishing books. It's how, after my first book, I've written and published five more books. Always remember, we are only limited by the limits we put on ourselves. And if I don't tell the stories on my heart and in my head, who will? And I love that uh, ending. We're only limited by the limitations we place on ourselves. Um, yeah, this is inspiring. Uh, thoughts, sir? Yeah, I love this post. I mean, it was fascinating to hear about her journey and just amazing that it took so long to get that diagnosis and she had already gone through high school and college and was about to publish a book and that she's done so much stuff um, and, and published six books, even with dyslexia. I mean, that's wonderful. So really inspiring. And I think a, a lot of what she has to say too is applicable for all writers. I mean, things like the importance of editing, um, you know, being honest with yourself about what your strengths and weaknesses are and reaching out for feedback from editors and people like that or using tools like Grammarly, if that's something that helps you. Um, there was also, what was one other point she made that I thought was great? Oh, the, the kind of idea that don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Like she was trying so hard to to find perfection with her first book and the perfect idea and the f perfect wording for everything. And I think sometimes that's something that I struggle with too, is I'm like, well, I don't want to commit to an idea because it has to be the perfect one. And if you think that way, then you're just never going to write anything. So sometimes you just have to make something and, and recognize that you're going to keep writing and making other things too. And each one doesn't have to be like the quote unquote perfect project. Um, so yeah, there was just so much good for uh, food for thought in there. It's really, really helpful. Yeah, Hannah. Yeah, she's amazing. I, f I love the way she speaks, too. She had the best way of kind of delivering that kind of inspirational. I, I know I saw, you know, I think you'd said in her bio that she's a TEDx speaker and she's done all of this work in front of people. You can totally feel that in the way she speaks. And I think she's done a great job of just finding what works for her. And I love that she kind of shared a little bit about her time at school. Um, just like, why am, why is it taking me 15, 20 hours to study for a test? My friends are doing five hours. Just like how everyone learns different differently to you. And I think that's a really valuable thing to kind of understand about yourself is just like, not everybody can 
do things at the same speed or at the same in the same style and when it comes to writing too it's such a creative craft um it's it's like and with dyslexia especially it's like you have all these ideas and it's just harder to translate them onto the written page and um so i feel like uh, i i don't know what i what i felt a lot from this pose was just um she's building community with her words um she's kind of making other people feel seen i'm sure um, I mean, for me personally, I've, I think I've talked about this before on the show, but I was not a school person. I did not like school. I don't like rules or any of that stuff. So I was just like, I want to learn by doing things. Right. But it always felt kind of weird to think that way for me growing up because everybody else is sort of just like, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to study all day. And I'm just like, I'm just going to do it and see what happens. You know? So I just feel like that was for me, I, I felt, um, I connect with that just in the sense that everyone has a little, a little bit different of a learning style. So, I mean, she's doing great stuff and super impressive and inspiring. It's awesome. Yeah. I like the, the way that uh, she named it and, and she didn't use it as an excuse, but used it to maybe help her understand, as you said, some of the reasons that uh, she was reading the way she was, but she wasn't going to use that uh, to say I'm in competition with somebody. I'm not, this is my own, this is what I do. And, and that's true for any writers. I think for any of us, we've always, we've all got something that might be getting in our way. Uh, and it's better that we not use it as an excuse, but uh, maybe as she said, figure out a way again, tying back in, we love this synergy to uh, setting writing goals, right? You set the goals that work uh, for you. She set goals to publish books and she's doing it. Um, and she's not making uh, any excuses. And, and the, the other point I liked is that, and Sarah, you mentioned this, the, uh, finishing instead of trying to have perfection. Um, y- you know, there's no perfect book. There's never going to be a perfect book. And if we recognize that, um, we can maybe get more out into the world because the more you write, hopefully the better you get and the more stories you come across. And so, hey, we want to thank uh, Stephanie uh, for, thank you for inspiring us today uh, uh, with your blog post, Working as an Author with Dyslexia. We could all fill in the blank. We're working as an author with blank, yeah. <laughs> whatever that might be. And uh, it could be we're working as an author uh, looking out the window at bunnies like yeah. Hannah does sometimes. Right? And Elaine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, uh, you know, or you got 18,000 writing things going on or, you, or you've got five writing groups uh, that you're going to like Sarah at the same time yeah. and you can't figure out which one to get to on time, right? Yeah. All right. Well, um, let's do this. We're going to take, after this uh, quick message, uh, we're going to go in Act 3 with our book recommendations and uh, what's coming next. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. All right, here we are with uh, Act 3, book recommendations. Uh, Sarah, what do you got this week? Um, So I'm recommending a collection of essays this time called Consider the Lobster and Other Essays by David Foster Wallace. Um, If you haven't read Wallace's work, I think this is a good book to maybe start with. You can kind of dip your toe in with something shorter, like an essay, as opposed to reading like Infinite Jest, which is like one or 2,000 pages. (laughs) Um, So it's it's a wonderful collection. He takes on kind of a variety of topics. I think there's an essay about like the ethics of eating lobsters. Um, He talks about politics, right-wing radio. There's one about an award show that's kind of 
like the Academy Awards for porn. <laughs> um, there's one about 9-11, which is like a really emotional and interesting piece. So the topics are kind of all over some like uh, theory and pop culture and politics, but he always brings such intelligence and insight and wisdom and humor to everything that he writes. I mean, he really was one of the smartest writers we've ever had. Um, so I hi highly recommend any of his work, but this is a great starting place, I think. All right, and Hannah, I'm really intrigued that you picked this next book because I think that like dates back to the 1960s or oh something before you were even a twinkle in your parents' eyes there. Yeah, so this one was actually recommended to be by, be me by my sister who is younger than me, but she's like the oldest soul you'll ever meet in your life. She's like always got this um, strategized reading plan for the month. She's like, I'm going to get into the Kurt Vonnegut stuff now. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> but she was like, and I'm kind of, I've said this before, but I'm, I'm sort of like, I don't know. I'm intimidated and I, don't, I can't always get into some of that stuff. Um, but postmodernism or what is, I forget what that, whatever. Anyway. So, um, but she said, she was like, I feel like you'd really like this book, Valley of the Dolls, um, by Jacqueline Susan. It's sort of, I really like, uh, kind of Hollywood style stories. A lot of the time, um, this one takes place in Hollywood, LA area. And it's, it's about, um, a, a duo of best friends, but just kind of their relationship over time and how, uh, just like, drugs impact them they're being around the wrong people just kind of some wild parties and relationships and stuff like that it's it's a it's a downer I'm not gonna lie like if you're not <laughs> if you're not really in the mood to feel kind of like disappointed don't read it but it's it's really well written and it's like exciting a lot I feel like it's sort of cool I like stuff like that in the 60s and just party you know things like it's kind of like uh Taylor Jenkins Reid's books but older um, so if you like kind of Malibu Rising or Daisy Jones, all that stuff that's kind of getting really popular right now, this is sort of like, it reminds me of pre all of that. So it's, it's really good. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an older pick for me today. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm, I'm picking older too. I'm picking books this month that have uh, been challenged in schools, resulting in temporary or permanent bans in school libraries. And this, uh, week, uh, it's, uh, John Steinbeck's of Mice and Men. That was a novella. Published in 1937, it, uh, it's the experience of two characters, George Milton and Lenny Small. Um, they're displaced migrant workers during the uh, move that displaced a number of people to California, search of job opportunities during the Great Depression um, in the U.S. And um, they say the Steinbeck basis somewhat on his own experiences, but it, it does have, uh, it's been the target of censors over the years because it has a lot of vulgarity and some offensive language. Uh, and it appears on the American Library Association list of the most challenged books of the 21st century. Uh, but it is a classic, and uh, I'm not going to give away the ending. Uh, sad ending, but inevitable ending uh, between these two characters that kind of try to make their way across uh, across the West. Um, I can't remember if I was, I probably was assigned the book <laughs> to read in school. We studied it uh, as part of uh, a high school curriculum, but uh well worth a read, and go out and read more uh, books uh, that are banned. Um, all right, we got one from uh, Mark West. Hello, this is Mark West with the storied Charlotte blog. My book recommendation today is an old novel that seems so contemporary in its concerns. It's by the American novelist Sinclair Lewis, and it's titled It Can't Happen Here. When I was in college, I read a lot of Sinclair Lewis, including Babbitt and Main Street and Aerosmith. But then I read It Can't Happen Here, and it stuck with me ever since. 
It Can't Happen Here, was published in 1935. And in this book, Sinclair Lewis envisions an America where authoritarian forces take over the country under the guise of patriotism and religion and do away with our democratic traditions. It's also about dissent and the importance of dissent. For those of us who are concerned about the rise of authoritarian movements, it can't happen here, still speaks strongly to the world we live in today. Thank you. All right. A number of good uh, recommendations. I like the fact, uh, my wife Janet mentioned this, we listened to an episode the other day writing up to Durham about how we all come at uh, books uh, in different ways. And so that's why hopefully on this show, you're going to get all kinds of recommendations uh, and you're going to find something uh, that you like. Uh, All right. uh, What's coming next, uh, Sarah? Uh, Next time, we're going to feature critically acclaimed bestselling storyteller Stephen James and his novel Broker of Lies, which is a government intelligence thriller that explores the complexities of keeping secrets, finding truth and pursuing justice. We also feature author Joe Conjol, author of the Rasmund Mystery Crime Files series and his blog post titled Three Words I Live By, Never Give Up. And, of course, we're going to have a thought-provoking Charlotte two-minute tip, plus any elevator pitches and book recommendations. All right, Hannah, you get the last right, word. Guys, just read on, ride on, and rock on. 